Our last passage on the podcast, Walking with Dante, was super complicated with the appearance of Jerry Del Bello and the whole problem of feeling pity for the damned. Wow, two passages in a row. Contrapasso with Bertrand de Born and Pio, compassion or pity with Jerry Del Bello. Two big corkers in a row. Thank goodness the passage ahead of us is much simpler. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and we are slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we are in Canto 29. We're at lines 37 through 72. Now, sure and nonetheless, we are getting to the 10th of the evil pouches of the Malabolgia that make up the giant landscape of fraud. Let me say that there are hundreds, literally hundreds, of episodes behind this one in the podcast, and it is not too late to start the walk back there. If you are here under your own steam and have gotten here through the long walk, wow, we are foot sore, but it's time we had a passage that was relatively easy, and we do have one in front of us that is interesting as we get our first glimpse into the 10th pit, but nonetheless relatively easy. Here it is, lines 37 through 72 of Canto 29 in my English translation. You can find this on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. They go to the same place. You can read along there, and even better, you could drop a comment there about this episode and anything that seems unclear to you or any alternate interpretation you would like to give. So we kept on talking as far as the first spot on the ridge that could show the next valley's floor, if enough light were to get down into it. And when we were over the last cloister-like enclosure of these evil pouches, and all its converts were apparent to our vision, weird laments (laughs) pierced me, as if these arrows had iron tips made out of pity. I immediately covered my ears with my hands. It was like all the suffering from July through September in the hospitals of Valdechiana as well as Maremma and Sardinia were gathered in one ditch, indeed just like that, and such a stench hit us as if it came from a heap of putrefying body parts. We came down to the last embankment of that long ridge, as usual sticking to the left, and then my eyes could get a more lifelike view down toward the bottom, where the ministress of the Lord on high, that is, infallible justice, punishes all the falsifiers in her bureaucratic records. I don't believe it could have been much sadder to see the people of Agina in the full grasp of the disease when the air was thick with so much contagion so that every animal, even the little worms, were all done in, at which point the ancient people, or so the poets held for certain, were restored to life from the seed of ants. It was just that bad in that dim valley to see all the spirits languishing about like shocks of limp grain. 
This one over that one's stomach. This one over that one's shoulders. Now they're crawling on all fours, all in an attempt to transpose themselves along that wretched path. Step by step, we went along without talking, watching and overhearing the invalids who couldn't even lift their bodies up. We had a pit that had the horrors of war. Now we have a pit that has the horrors of disease. In this episode of the podcast, I want to just go through this passage line by line. I'm going to just take it in basically six-line chunks, a couple three-line chunks, and one nine-line chunk, but basically just chunk up the passage and walk right through it, talking about various problems inside of the lines. It's not terribly complicated. It is really foul. I want to unlock a bit of that weird ant imagery and story about the people who came back alive because of ants. And there's a couple of little problems that have plagued Dantistas in this passage, but nothing as grandiose as Contrapasso or Pio from the previous two episodes. So let's get started. The passage starts, so we kept on talking as far as the first spot on the ridge that could show the next valley's floor if enough light were to get down into it. You remember that this is all sloping down here in the Malabolja. We're on a ridge running at a slope down, and that one side of the pit is always higher than the other side of the pit. This came into play with the barriters and the people who had sold political office. It's come into play several times, and so we see here that they keep on walking and they come to the upper ledge, the first ledge looking down into the pit, and it's higher than the second ledge. Because it's higher, you can't quite see down into the bottom of the pit from here. This passage that we kept on talking as far as the first spot on the ridge that could show the next valley's floor is very reminiscent of a previous moment in comedy. At the opening of Canto 21, the lines read, the first three lines, in this way from bridge to bridge while talking about things my comedy isn't bothered to sing, we went along, we reached the apex when we stopped, blah, blah, blah. We can feel the transition here just as we felt it back in Canto 21. We see, however, that that moment is at the start of Canto 21, and this moment is at line 37 of Canto 29, thereby really reinforcing the idea that the first 36 lines are out of place or special or deserve scrutiny. I think Dante is here echoing back to the opening of a canto, the pure right opening of the first three lines of a canto, so that we really do see that the first 36 lines of this canto are out of bounds. They are full of problematics, way out in left field somewhere, calling us to the further scrutiny of what has come before us by just reminding us that the real business of the 10th pit doesn't start until now. It then goes on, and when we were over the last cloister-like enclosure, so now they're on that bridge. They've walked from that first upper shelf onto the bridge, and they're on a cloister-like enclosure. I have really had to 
gyrate the English here to make sense out of it. The word used here is kiostra. Kiostra is without a doubt enclosure, but kiostra reminds us of kiostro which is cloister. The words are very close to each other. Kiostra, kiostro. And because they're close to each other, and because in the very next line, the sinners inside this pouch are called conversi, converts. We really hear the churchy references going on here. We came over the last cloister like, boy, you should just hear it, especially in medieval context, dripping with satire of the evil pouches with all its converts apparent to our vision. Remember I had told you in the previous pouch that Muhammad may be a source of anxiety, particularly in the Middle Ages. Well, certainly for many Christians today in this world, but in the Middle Ages, because there were so many Christians converting to Islam during Dante's day, especially given the, well, what do I want to say, the place of honor that Islam held in certain courts like Frederick's down in Sicily, and also because of the way Islamic learning had preserved so much of the ancient world. It was a source of much agitation, and if that's so, then this reference here to conversi, to converts down in this pit, does call us a bit in a strange way back perhaps to the emotional landscape of the Mohammed scene in the 28th canto. But what happens is very different. There, Dante saw people hacked apart and he couldn't even believe his eyes. Here, it's not eyes, it's hearing. The passage says, weird laments pierced me as if these arrows had iron tips made of pity. We instantly recall the reactions to Jerry Del Bello. Pity. These cries from these converts in these cloisters bring pity to the pilgrim, and it's difficult, hard, painful. Arrows, arrows being shot, and their tips are made out of iron, but they're also pity, and that pity runs him right through, and his reaction is interesting. Does he cry? No. I immediately covered my ears with my hands. He's going to try to stop the sounds coming out of this pit. He can stop the sounds, but he can't stop the smells, as we'll discover. But also, I just want you to hold this line in your head. I immediately covered my ears with my hands to stop the sounds. This will come into play down the road in the 30th canto, where we're still in this 10th pit. Yes, this 10th pit will last across two cantos, 29 and 30. This line, I covered my ears with my hands, will play out in a <laughs> joke, sort of a joke, in canto 30. So just hold it in your head as we move forward. We come to the first simile in the passage. It was like all the suffering from July through September in the hospitals of Valdechiana as well as Marema and Sardinia. It's as if all that suffering were gathered in one ditch. Indeed, these are places famous for the malarial outbreaks 
during the summer months. In that summer heat from July to September, malaria became rampant in places like the low-lying marshes of the Marema, and the hospitals would fill with those suffering the malarial ailments. There are far too many dentistas <laughs> who claim this is somehow about bubonic plague, about the plague. It is not. Plague did not arrive in Italy till the 1340s. Dante is dead when plague arrives in Italy. This is not that. This is instead a reference to the summer, July through September. Plague was not a summer disease. It's malaria. And it is the bloating, the distending, and the disgusting turn of events that malaria causes. Trust me on this one, since I carried the malarial parasite. Malaria is not a fun thing to get. Yes, I got it. Oh, it's a long story and not related to this passage on this brainy idea I had of motorbiking up Africa and somehow not taking any malarial medications. Ugh. Anyway, what's going on here is the malarial plagues. And notice that despite the fact that the pilgrim can stop the sounds of the suffering of the invalids, he can't stop the smell. This is a particularly disgusting pit. Such a stench hit us as if it came from a heap of putrefying body parts. And you really have to think about medieval hospitals here. That You really have to think about how the, the, the ill are treated. You would really have to realize that, of course, pieces of you without any antibiotics, pieces of you rot off long before you're dead. The smell in medieval hospitals must have been absolutely overwhelming. Imagine the smell of gangrenous bits that are perhaps cut off and yet the gangrene is still moving up the body. Imagine the parts of infected sores. Imagine all of this. Oh, the smell must have just been horrifying. But also note, once again, the materiality of lower hell. Stench. How do souls stink? How can, how can a shade, as I say, you know, something out of Marlboro country, just a whiff of smoke, how can a shade stink? Well, sure enough, they do here. And sure enough, that is what hits us is the smell. So while in the pit of the schismatics, we had sight assaulted by the hacked up bodies. Here, we have our ears and our noses assaulted by these sick invalids as if they make up a medieval hospital. We should note that our first simile in this passage is from a low common place. It is not a classical fancy simile. Rather, it is a contemporary to Dante, a contemporary simile about malarial suffering in the summer in the Italian peninsula and even over to Sardinia. We came down to the last embankment of that long ridge, as usual, sticking to the left. And Dante seems to want us to know that uh, this always is what happens, that they come down off the bridge that goes over the pit, and then they move to their left to get a look down into the pit 
always sticking to the left. Now, listen, there are two moments in which they don't stick to the left. They turn right at the heretics and they turn right before they descend into the giant circle of fraud on Garion's back. So it's not a constant, this moving on the left. But Dante seems at some pains to remind us of familiarity here. And maybe that's because the stench is so horrifying and what's happening in this pit is so scary, especially to a medieval audience, that there has to be a kind of reassurance. Oh, right. The journey's going on as it's always been going on. Now they're on the lower of the two bridges. So as the passage says, my eyes get a more lifelike view down toward the bottom. Again, the difference in the heights of the ledges, and now we're in the lower ones, so it's easier to see down into the bottom of things. And then out of the blue comes this line, where the ministress of the Lord on high. When is the last time in Inferno you heard the mention of the Lord on high? Um, <laughs> uh, basically, rarely, basically, uh, just try to think the last time you heard a phrase like this, the Lord on high. Wow, it just chumps out of the passage as if we are coming down toward the bottom of hell and we are being signaled that the pilgrim is suddenly getting much more conscious of God. God, not just of the journey itself. This is setting us up for what's going to happen, I think, at the bottom of hell. And I think this is one of Dante's typical techniques of dropping ideas in front of us before we come on the big revelation. And the center of hell is a big revelation. And I think the mention of the Lord on high is setting us up for the surprise of the center of hell itself. But here, the Lord on high has a ministress. It is in the feminine, a female minister called infallible justice. I guess we should think of the picture of justice as a woman with blindfolded with the scales, right? But still, nonetheless, it's a little strange in a medieval context that it's feminine. Not completely. There are notions of feminine and justice in both Christian thought and in pagan thought in Dante's day. But it's a little interesting to note it. And note that the justice is infallible, and the ministress of the Lord on high, infallible justice, punishes all the falsifiers. So now we're told what's in the pit, and we're also given this phrase. And I should tell you that the word bureaucratic is not in the medieval Florentine. I've inserted it here because the word used for what the ministress does, the recording, is a very legalistic or bureaucratic word. So I wanted to get this idea of kind of civic records, that there is a record somewhere, a registry in which all the crimes are written down by this infallible justice and that, you know, hey, this is where the falsifiers get their bit out of the bureaucratic records. I should tell you that this bit has caused a lot of problems for Dantistas because if I were more accurately to transcribe the passage. There's a problem of here and there in the passage. And it would be something like down toward the bottom where the ministress of the Lord on high, that is infallible justice, uh, records the punishments of the falsifiers. Maybe something like that. Records here the punishments of the falsifiers. 
It's getting closer to an actual translation. The reason this has caused problems is what is that here? Does that mean that she records something here? Or does in fact it mean there, as in up above, that, that during their lives it gets recorded? I mean, why would it be recorded here? Aren't they already judged when they're here? Robert Hollander has an interesting solution to this problem of the here and there in the passage. He claims that what is meant by the ministress of justice records the falsifiers here. The here there refers to inferno, here, in this text, the thing in your hands, here. This is where you can find the records of justice. You're holding it. If so, that's a great, you know I love it. It's a great meta-literary solution to a little problem that has plagued Dantistas. If it is, in fact, a meta-literary reference to the text you're very holding in your hand, then, wow, Dante has connected himself up in three lines with both the Lord on high and the Lord on high's ministress of infallible justice, thereby upping the divine claims of the poem. Through the ceiling. Or perhaps there's a different explanation, although this is completely speculative. This does sound like the voice of the poet, the infallible mistress justice. This sounds as if the poet has stepped into the poem and told us the point of the pit ahead of us and the theological ramifications of that pit. And while there is a long now storied interpretation of comedy as the pilgrim's metamorphosis into the poet, there are times in which the poet erupts because of thematic or textual or even poetic insecurities inside the text. We could maybe posit this, the appearance of Bertrand de Born, in which the poet seems to step forward and say, I still see a guy carrying his head like a lantern. Well, perhaps this passage is the poet's abrupt appearance inside the canto to make up for the fact that the early opening lines of the canto are so familial to the pilgrim. They're so connected by his own blood to his family's issues, its nobility, its vendetta. Maybe because those opening 36 lines are so personal to the pilgrim, the poet erupts here almost as a counterbalance or counterweight. Again, this is pure speculation. It doesn't necessarily answer the passage, nor does it necessarily solve anything <laughs> but its own problem that it's posed. Always convenient in criticism when you can solve something <laughs> that is the problem you yourself have posed. So <laughs> there you go. Maybe that's all that does. And yet at the same time, I know enough about comedy and the eruption of the poet into the text to know that while there is indeed a movement of the pilgrim toward the poet over the course of comedy, nonetheless, the poet does appear at thematic, poetic, religious, and sometimes symbolically charged and difficult moments. Perhaps this is a counterbalance to what has come before. In any case, it's still an odd reference sitting here in the text. This is the second simile. I don't believe it could have been much sadder to see the people of Aegina 
or aina in modern Greek, aina in the full grasp of the disease when the air was thick with so much contagion. The reference here is to a story about this island just a little ways off Athens that Ovid tells in the Metamorphoses in Book 7, lines 523 through 660. A plague hits this island. I'm not sure that the causes in Ovid have much to say about this passage, although there are many Dantistas who would disagree with me. But a plague hits this island and the air is thick, as Dante says, with contagion. In Ovid, actually, clouds and winds and water and air are all involved in the passing of the contagion. Dante limits it to the air, I think, to remind us of the smell that is coming up from this pit. He limits what is in Ovid, many more sources of the contagion, the judgment. It's a judgment of the gods against the people of this island. And he says so that every animal, even little worms, a detail that's not in Ovid, even little worms, were all done in, at which point the ancient people, or so the poets held for certain, were restored to life from the seed of ants. And the idea here is that the king has a dream and he sees his people reconstituted and he sees them reconstituted out of ants and ants somehow evolve very quickly up into a civilization again and suddenly there are people and the island is populated again after this plague that came on them as a judgment of the gods. Singleton claims that this line, or so the poets held for certain, indicates that Dante believes that this tale is a favola or a fable, that it indicates that Dante doubts the veracity of the story itself. If so, we've got an intriguing juxtaposition, but let me just finish out the passage and then we'll come back to that juxtaposition. It was just that bad, the passage goes on, in that dim valley to see all the spirits languishing about like shocks of limp grain. Now we kind of get a better vision of them. We see the harvested grain shocks and the way when you lean them against each other, they kind of fall this way and that in a field. That's what the invalids in this pit look like. Let's stop for a minute and think about the two similes we came across. You remember the first one was about the hospitals. It was like all the suffering in the hospitals in the summer months from malaria. And then we came back to the journey itself and we saw them cross over to the lowest embankment in all of fraud and then we had a second simile and this is a classical reference interesting that the first simile is from real life contemporary life it's definitely low style the second simile is definitely the big high style but i should tell you that if you look at the medieval florentine the rhymes in the second simile are quite jarring they're a bit ugly, to say the least. Dante is contorting the language here so that it's pretty unpleasant. It happens in both similes, actually, but it's more shocking for it to happen in the classical simile. We should also note that the, the common contemporary simile goes first, and then we get this classical simile, a reverse order of how most texts would conduct their business. And note that the modern medical establishments, hospitals, are then paralleled to a classical text with a potential doubt 
or so the poets held for certain. Does that then let us pull a little doubt into the modern medical knowledge of the Middle Ages in the first simile? There may be a way in which both similes decenter each other, and the knowledge claims, to use the fancy word, the epistemology of both similes calls itself into question, and we are thrown back both times into an image that allows us to see it again imagistically uh, and understand better the simile. The first time, it's as if from a heap of putrefying body parts, and the second time, it's shocks of grain lying against each other. Both similes finish with a simile to try to further explain them. It's pretty complicated poetically, and it's pretty interesting poetically. It's interesting because the low style starts out, and then we move to classical style. It's interesting because the rhymes are incredibly ugly in the low style, but then they're also ugly in the classical reference. They're jarring, to say the least. It's interesting that Dante rewrites Ovid, puts those little worms that died too inside of Ovid. And in fact, those little worms, if even the worms died, then doesn't that discount the whole idea of ants breeding a new civilization of people. I'm just going to pass over that little logic problem right there and say it's interesting that Dante feels free to rewrite Ovid to limit where the contagion comes from. It's all happening inside of this. And you realize we haven't yet really seen into the pit. We have come all the way down through this passage, through walking, through glimpsing, through hearing, through a simile, through smelling, through a bit about divine infallible justice to a simile, we still haven't actually got a vision. We've talked around and around what's happening here. Now, we've been told flat out, the falsifiers. I don't want to give away the plot to you, but who we're coming to are alchemists and counterfeiters and people who give false testimony and people who impersonate other people. All kinds of falsifications are punished inside this pit, but we still haven't got a good look at the pit itself until the next lines. This one over that one's stomach. This one over that one's shoulders. Another crawling on all fours, all in an attempt to transpose themselves along that wretched path. Now we see them. We see them all over each other, heaped on each other, festering its rank and filthy and disgusting. And the word used there to transpose themselves, as I translated along the speech, is si transmutava, to transmute themselves along the path. Clearly, Dante drops hints and sets us up. He's setting us up for alchemy, to transmute. But we should also say transmutava is a callback to the transmutations of the thieves. And there is a way in which this pit undoes some of the poetic hijinks of the thieves, but we have to save (laughs) for what's ahead. Let's just finish off with the last few lines. 
Step by step, we went along without talking, watching and overhearing the invalids who couldn't even lift their bodies up. Time and again in this passage, we come back to the journey, come back to the walking. We started it with the walking, then, you know, we got a glimpse. Then we went and and then we got a simile. Then we went back to the walking, then we went to a simile. Then we got a real glimpse inside the pent, and now we're back to the walking. This entire passage has a real emphasis on the walking. And I think there's a couple things you can say here. One, the bodies in this pit are so bloated and so putrefied and so disgusting that they couldn't just walk. And so the walking of Virgil and the pilgrim is in direct contrast to the crawling suffering of these invalids inside the pit who are just all heaped on top of each other down there. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think that we should notice that after we've been told in the last episode of this podcast and the last passage that there is a divinely sanctioned time element to this journey that walking is suddenly foregrounded here we as i did we just have to keep going have to keep going have to keep going have to be getting on because we've only got so much time allotted to us to complete this journey through hell <laughs> we're at canto 29 we gotta get all the way to canto 34 in the allotted time so you gotta keep walking I think that there is a way in which the text is repeating to us constantly to say that this is not a stroll, that now we are understanding that this is a journey. I mean, all along we've been told that this is a divinely sanctioned journey, even way back up at the walls of Dis, we were told that this was a divinely sanctioned journey, but we didn't really know it had a time frame on it, and it had to be completed in a certain amount of time. Now we do, and now we know that they've got to get on. And we do too. We have to get on to the next passage in Canto 29 and meet some of these suffering souls down in this pit. It's not going to be pleasant. Let me tell you that this is one of the foulest spots of hell, to say the least. I mean, we've seen a lot of foul stuff. We've seen (laughs) flatterers sunk in human excrement, but we're in a bad spot. But let's keep going, right? Walk. That's the point, is walk. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, do all those things you need to do. I'll do all the things I need to do, and we can keep walking together. I wish, instead of walking, you and I could sit down at a table and have a drink together, have a meal together, and talk about Dante. Shoot. We can't do it like Virgil. (laughs) We are being whipped forward by the text itself. So it goes. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you next time.